Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Is the UK going to be able to stay together despite the shock of Brexit? Or are we drifting inexorably apart? And is that a good thing or a bad one? Joining me is the Irish thinker and journalist, Fintan O'Toole. Welcome to The Bunker, Fintan. It's lovely to be with you, Ros. So you wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs magazine recently, which has been causing a bit of a stir, and you said the UK was muddling towards extinction. I think that would come as quite a shock to many people embroiled in Westminster politics who only have the vaguest sense sometimes of what is happening elsewhere. Where does the union feel most fragile to you at the moment? Well, I think the obvious place to start maybe is with Northern Ireland, um, you know, which is uh, obviously very current in terms of the discussion of the effects of Brexit on Northern Ireland's place within the UK. Um, and we've had the whole very tedious saga of the backstop and then the protocol and and now the, the, the Windsor deal and the protocol. But behind all of that, I mean, we do have a pretty extraordinary story, which is that essentially the United Kingdom has agreed that one of its constituent parts will have a very different Brexit from the other three. And if you stand back from it, you know, this, this is a rather remarkable thing to have engineered, you know, where out of this project, which is, is mostly supported by people who say they care about the, the union and are passionate about the union, they've essentially managed to create a dynamic whereby Northern Ireland will be more and more aligned with the European Central Market, or the European Single Market, rather, uh, and Customs Union, and probably the rest of, of, of the UK is going in the opposite direction. So, you know, that, that's a very obvious and immediate fault line. And what's interesting about it from my point of view, watching the whole thing from Ireland, was that it's not just that this is where it's ended up but that this is where it was always going to end up and nobody much in Britain cared. <laughs> you know, there was really mm. no profound discussion at all about what Brexit was going to mean for Northern Ireland's place in the Union, which suggests that actually it's not something which is even very much on the minds of most people in Westminster. No, I mean, it was remarkable having covered Brexit in the run-up to the referendum and just afterwards, how long it took for there to be any meaningful discussion about Northern Ireland at all. But I wanted to ask you as well, we're in a situation now, as we record, where the DUP, Democratic Unionist Party, have said they're going to reject the Windsor Agreement. And the corollary of that is that they're not, probably not going to sit in the Stormont Assembly. To an outsider, it almost feels like cutting off your nose to spite your face to continue to refuse to sit there. Can you imagine a time when Northern Islanders, perhaps, who don't support the DUP, turn around and say, well, actually, if you're going to force this future on us where we haven't got even our own assembly, is it time for reunification with Ireland? Yeah, you, you know, uh, I suppose we should stress that we're, we're we're sort of talking in the, you know, long and medium term rather than immediately. Um there is no strong evidence that most people in Northern Ireland want a united Ireland tomorrow. <laughs> but I think what we're talking about here is the direction of travel. And uh, there, there are very profound changes underway. The recent census showed, of course, that Northern Ireland, which was established precisely to have a Protestant and therefore a unionist majority, no longer has either. So the whole raison d'etre for the existence of Northern Ireland is no longer there. Demographic change is is obviously a very major factor in all of this. 
Um, and what you've got really is in Northern Ireland at the moment, you have you have neither a unionist nor a nationalist majority. Um, they're, they're, you've actually got two minorities there. And then you have the people in the middle who are largely speaking young people, well-educated people who don't want to be placed in those categories. And the future of Northern Ireland is going to be decided by, by that sort of 20% of people um, who are currently tend to suggest that they're open to persuasion. So there's no doubt about the fact that Brexit has taken a situation in which Northern Ireland was pretty well settled under the Belfast Agreement within the UK for the foreseeable future and turned that into a situation where all those existential questions of where it belongs, including whether it belongs in a united Ireland, are very much on the table again. And in a way that suggests that the most likely drift of history is towards some form of Irish unification. You've written about Britishness a lot, and you've identified recently some of the things that we associate with Britishness, which are gradually being eroded. Tell us about those. Yeah, I think when I, when I was writing this piece of foreign affairs, um, I mean, they asked me to write it, and I thought, well, okay, well, what's what's what might be interesting to look at? And it, it's sort of an opportunity, in a way, to just detach oneself a little bit from the week-to-week politics of it and just think about the longer historical forces you know that i don't think the uk was ever a natural occurrence you know it's not like a very obvious uh, bounded place where everybody felt the same kind of national or ethnic identity god knows the english and the scots hated each other for for a very long time uh, before 1707 so what was the driving force behind the union uh, I mean, there's a couple of them, aren't there? I mean, there's the obvious one of empire. I think if I was Scottish in the early 18th century and I had some resources, some money, um, I would have said, well, actually, you know what? Um, submerging Scottishness a bit in these bigger British ideal is worth it if we get a big slice of the empire, which indeed the Scots did. But that's gone. A- another huge factor in all of this, of course, was religion. So the idea of Britishness was profoundly tied up with the idea of of Protestantism and, of course, the the corollary of opposition to Catholicism. I mean, you can't really understate that. I think it it has to be seen as a very, very important uh, part of what it meant to be British. Again, the census of showing us that not only is Britain no longer a Protestant country, it's no longer a Christian country, never mind any particular branch of Christianity. The role of religion in in national identity has has receded hugely. And I suppose just, just to mention two other big, big factors. I mean, one is the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I'm old enough, um, sadly, to remember that, you know, say in the late 1970s still, if you visited Britain from Ireland, you were just really struck by the fact that, you know, there was a common working class industrial culture that was stretched really from you know, from Glasgow to the English Midlands to Cardiff, you know, it would take you into a realm of shared lives. You know, people people led very similar kinds of lives because they were industrial and a similar sort of identity. It was a cross-British working class identity, which was represented, of course, so much by the trade unions and the Labour Party. 
that, of course, was unraveled, you know, very deliberately by that great unionist, um, Margaret Thatcher. You know, and, and I don't think British industrial identity functions in that way anymore. And the fourth factor is, is a little bit more um, abstract, but it's uh, just worth mentioning as well, which is the idea of prestige, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. Britain was on a pretty amazing winning streak in terms of its prestige in the world. I mean, really, after the loss of the American colonies, you know, there's a whole series of, 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 of huge world events in which Britain's on the winning side, you know, from the Napoleonic Wars onwards. And that prestige tied up with kind of ideas of military prowess um, and the ability to project power around the world undoubtedly gave, you know, Britain um, the idea of Britishness, I think, is kind of a glamour and allure. And that's gone now. It's striking that we're at the moment kind of thinking about the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, it can probably be seen as a rather bitter last hurrah for that idea of of Britain as a sort of neo-imperial power. So all of those things which are kind of foundations of Britishness are are gone. Um, And I think that's where we do need to think about um, what is the viability of a project whose foundations uh, seem to have disappeared. So just after the EU referendum, you described Brexit as an English nationalist revolution. And we know, of course, that England voted for Brexit. Wales narrowly voted for Brexit, though I think there's a school of academic thought that says it was English people in Wales that tipped it towards Brexit. Scotland didn't and Northern Ireland didn't. So if we see it that way, apart from the, you know, the idea of sovereignty, which always has been vague and badly articulated, and arguably not practical. What is it that the English really want? Do we have a desire to go it alone? Is that the overriding thing? Is this why we're not perhaps, as you mentioned earlier, very bothered about Northern Ireland splitting off? Or is there something else going on? What vision do we have of ourselves on our own? I think that's a that's the great question. Um, my compatriot Bernard Shaw in the <laughs> over 100 years ago liked to sort of tease English people with the question of whether England is ready for self-government, um, <laughs> which was a kind of reply to the question that was asked about the Irish and other, other colonized peoples, you know. And I don't have an answer to those questions, Roz, and I don't think anybody else does either, you know, because I think what's distinctive about English nationalism is that it is poorly articulated even to itself, right? So we, we could spend all day arguing about, you know, whether nationalism is a good thing or a bad thing or the different forms that it takes. But the classical forms of nationalism, they gestate for quite a long time. I mean, there's a lot of, there's political parties, there's national theatres, there's national poets, there's, you know, a whole panoply of things that go into the formation of this national identity. And it's it's hammered out and it's contested and that hasn't happened with, with English nationalism. I mean, what we know historically is that Englishness is a very, very powerful sense of identity. Um, English people are very proud to be English and, and they're perfectly entitled to that. I'm, I'm not uh, criticizing that at all, you know, as someone who would probably say I'm proud to be Irish. I, I, I certainly can't turn around and, 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 and criticize the same feelings in, in English people. 
I think the difference, though, is that there is no substantial political party which represents English nationalism. I mean, you could say UKIP did, but it didn't even call itself the English National Party, you know, the, the UK Independence Party. Um, you, you can say that certain parts of Toryism do, but again, you know, the Tory party calls itself the Conservative and Unionist Party. And so this, this whole sense of w- where does England fit in the UK, to be honest, it was a question that most of us were not even asking, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, And yet all the signs were there, you know, that if you do devolution, if you give Scotland and Wales their own parliaments, if you say that Northern Ireland has the right to secede from the UK at any any time that it wants, it's pretty natural for English people to say, well, hold on, what about us? You know, what's what's our place within this? Um, Englishness was subsumed in two very powerful constructs, which were empire and Britishness. But if both of those are are troubled, um, then some sort of Englishness is just bound to emerge. It seems to me, and this is a very poor answer to your question, really, but that Englishness is at the stage of knowing what it's not, but not knowing what it is. And a lot of nationalisms do go through that kind of phase. Certainly in Ireland, we, God knows we, <laughs> we went through it for a long time, you know, which is that it's us and them. And it's very easy to say who them are, you know, which is Europeans, uh, invading, you know, migrants coming over in small boats, uh, you know, the moaners, um, traitors within our midst, all that stuff. The the negative side of it is powerfully articulated. Uh, But the positive side of it, the us, you know, what, what is the English us? It seems to me that's a really critical question. And if it's not addressed, it's going to come back in some form. I mean, Brexit gave it an expression uh, but I think it's a it's a very fragile sort of moment. You know, it's it, Brexit ultimately doesn't satisfy any real sense of national identity uh, because uh, it it just it has not even expressed itself properly in those terms. No, I mean, I, I think it was a concept in search of a definition <laughs> from the very yeah. beginning. I think the genius of Brexit was to have put a word to something that no one could quite articulate exactly. properly. But is it a paradox of being so dominant, perhaps, in the context of the UK, that's meant that England has not had to define itself because it is consistently and considers itself to be the leading force? And so the corollary of that, I suppose, would be that it, it wouldn't be until other nations split off that England would be forced to find out what it was. I would very strongly agree with that. Um, you know, if you look at it historically, what happened, of course, was that uh, the English very reluctantly accepted the Scots as as partners. You know, if you, if you go back to the 18th century, the amount of anti-Scottish feeling is is very strong. But they they accepted precisely because it's pretty clear that it's still. Uh, an unequal relationship, you know, that Scotland is is a partner, but a junior partner. Um, the, the Irish thing, of course, is a whole other story, but Englishness is dominant. And you have just linguistically, I mean, for, for so long, public discourse in England uses England when it means Britain. <laughs> you know, it just, just uh, sort of pretends that, that Englishness covers everything the essence of Britishness, you know. So maybe it didn't have to rethink itself in those terms for for a very long time. But then it's when you do get in the the late 20th and early 21st century, when you do get this sort of uh, 
increased self-presentation of Scottish and Welsh and Irish nationalism that there's then a bit of resentment and, and people saying, what, what, what do you mean you're not happy to be English? <laughs> you know? Let's talk about Scottish nationalism a bit, because obviously uh, Nicola Sturgeon going, the party is in the throes of redefining itself to a certain extent. When we think about Scottish nationalism, which you know is by no means a done deal, it, it goes both ways in terms of the opinion polls. Um, is it truly a kind of nationalism? Because a lot of SNP supporters, I think, do not think of themselves as nationalists in a traditional sense. Not you might, as you might say, blindly patriotic, as very progressive. Does do you think Scottish nationalism has a lot further to go? And if so, what, what direction is it likely to go in now? Yes, I mean. I think the political achievement of the SNP was to get itself out of the um, tartan curtained room of, uh, you know, uh, Braveheart and the Heather and the, the Highlands and the, all that nonsense. You know, um, uh, I, th- I think it was Billy Connolly who said that one of his jokes was that the tragedy of Scotland wasn't that you know Scottish people produced tins of um, shortbread with fellows tramping through the heather and kilts uh, on the tin, but that they bought them themselves, you know. And uh, there was certainly a truce to that, I think, uh, you know, that Scottish nationalism had this kind of backward-looking uh, romance, which was politically inert. I mean, it just couldn't go anywhere. I mean, it did a very good job of trying to redefine its nationalism as a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. It's been very effective in terms of um, transcending the sectarian divide in Scotland, which is which is no mean feat. And so, yeah, it definitely has kind of placed itself as a different kind of nationalism, you know, one that is not uh, rooted in blood and soil, uh, but is rooted in political ideas and in a sort of broader patriotism and outward-looking sense of Europeanness. The huge difficulty for it, uh, well, I think there are two. I mean, one is... As a civic nationalism, it promises more than it can deliver. Right? So, so it's a left of center ideology and and political project um, that actually requires greater governmental powers than Scotland has. Uh, and its second problem, I think, is that uh, that the mechanisms of independence are now much more difficult. Um, one of the things I was trying to say in that that piece, you know, was that there's this paradox in a way that that Brexit has made Scottish nationalism uh, both in in some ways much more desirable and much more difficult, right? So it's it's more desirable because in 2014, one of the most potent arguments against independence was, well, you'll be outside the European Union. Do you really want to do that? Uh, now, of course, if there were a, a, another referendum, one of the great arguments would be, well, we can rejoin the European Union. Um, and, and that obviously would mean a lot to a lot of voters. The difficulty is that if you rejoin the European Union, you are creating a hard border, most certainly between Scotland and England, which, of course, you, you would not have had to do necessarily in, in 2014 if independence had won. So, so the actual mechanisms of independence, the, the, how it would function, uh, has become a lot more difficult. And, of course, there is this fundamental legal issue of consent. Um, I think one of the reasons why Nicola Sturgeon has gone is the realisation that the project is kind of stuck, and it's stuck really by Catalonia. You know, when, when the Catalan government ran that illegal referendum 
and was in fact defeated by the Spanish government uh, with with some some brutality, but also some clever political manoeuvring. It really made the idea of regional governments calling their own referendums uh, extremely difficult. Uh, so Scotland needs the consent of Westminster to, to to run a referendum, and so long as Westminster keeps saying, "Well, no, we're not doing that," you had one in twenty fourteen. It's actually very difficult to see how the project of Scottish Scottish nationalism actually advances itself. If Labour win the next election, uh, Keir Starmer has pretty much committed to plans put forward by Gordon Brown for increased devolution in Scotland. What what do you think of those plans? Could they, if, I mean, his plan is obviously to neuter the SNP, could they do that? It seems to me that there's one last chance for the union, you know, <laughs> and it faces the dilemma that every polity that has underlying structural difficulties faces, right? Do you, do you concede more to your bureaucritics or those who want fundamental change in the hope of buying them off, as it were, appeasing them? Or do you conclude that the more you give, the more the reality of separation is going to take hold? Um, Nobody ever really quite knows the answer to that question. In the late 19th century, Tory governments in Britain tried the strategy in Ireland that they called killing home rule with kindness, you know, that that they would sort of be very nice to Ireland and, and, you know, give lots of goodies and concede lots of things. Um, it didn't really work out so well, you know, as as we know. But it does seem to me that the UK is at a point where something big has to be tried. And I think I think Gordon Brown's plan probably does represent something of a last chance, you know, which is to effectively move pretty far in the direction of federalism, you know, actually creating a federal state. Uh, there, there are lots of examples uh, where federal states have managed to hold together by giving more power to their regional states. I suppose if I was a Scottish unionist, I'd be looking to the example of Quebec, um, which looked for a long time like it was going to secede from Canada. And in that case, you know, um, greater federalization, giving more power, giving more recognition, um, being nicer to Quebec, being nicer to the French language. I mean, all of that seems to have worked, you know. So so there there definitely is a chance. Um, My skepticism would be whether a Labour government would actually do what Gordon Brown has proposed, you know. Because some of it's pretty radical, like abolishing the House of Lords effectively and replacing it with a second chamber of the regions and nations. Um, That seems to me to be an extremely good idea. But um, would Labour put the necessary political capital while inheriting probably an extremely difficult economic situation uh, into that kind of structural reform? I, I think I suggest in the piece that one one very likely scenario is um, Winston Churchill's KBO keep buggering on. You know that 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 actually all of these large scale structural reforms are just postponed and postponed and postponed. And I think if that is the case, um, then I don't think I would bet on the long term future of the union. Vincent, I would love to continue talking, but we've run out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. A real pleasure, Ross. Fintan O'Toole's most recent book is We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Hello 
I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be delighted if you wanted to support us to keep making podcasts at The Bunker. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber, and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.